This is Medieval Death Trip for Thursday, October 4th, 2018. Episode 58, concerning the life and many disentombments of Odoric of Pordenone. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. We wrapped up our four-part series of medieval travel writing last episode with an excerpt from the narrative of Franciscan missionary Odoricus, or Odoric, or Ordorico, of Friuli, or of Pordenone, or of Udine. Uh, Mash those up into all the different combinations you like. Uh, Previously, I went with Odoricus. But since our translation for today uses Odoric, I'll switch over to that. Um, Because today we'll be hearing the life of Odoric, including the foundation of his cult after his death. This vita is found in the Chronicle of the 24 Ministers General of the Order of Minor Friars, which was written sometime before the year 1369, so the account comes from within 40 years of Odoric's death. This means it's probably a pretty good witness to the events surrounding his death and burial, which occupy the second half of the text. The first half is largely focused on miraculous tales of Odoric's travels, which, for the most part, are not derived from Odoric's own text, as we heard from last episode. Only one of these tales, or maybe one and a half, is actually included in the text of the travels, and that's the story of Odoric passing through a valley of demons. Uh, And the one-half item is a description of the Franciscans in Tartary driving out devils, uh, which is something also mentioned by Odoric. But by what tradition the other wondrous events we're going to hear reached our hagiographer is not recorded. Given the humility of Odoric portrayed in this Vita, it's hard to imagine him telling these tales himself, uh, even outside of his written text. They may have come from his traveling companion, James of Ireland, who is name-checked in this Vita. And yet, The Vita doesn't describe these stories to any particular source, so who knows where they originated. I think this is the first whole saint's life that we've had as a featured text on the show. We've seen pieces from the life and miracles of St. William of Norwich, and from one Vita of St. Patrick, and we've gotten a kind of quasi-hagiography of Simon de Montfort and of John Scotus Eriugena. We did have a full item from the Golden Legend on St. Felix of Nola, and his brother St. Felix, uh, that was tacked on to the Eriugena episode, so that's probably the most full-on piece of hagiography we've actually seen. I'm struck by how odd that is, given how huge a narrative genre hagiography is in medieval literature. I mean, I've gone to the well of the life and miracles of William of Norwich many times already, and will go several more. But in general, I'm not sure why more saints' lives haven't made an appearance on the show. Actually, I take that back. I do have one idea, uh, which is that I just haven't focused on them in my own reading, and that's partly because after you've read a few, they start to blur together. I mean, I'm sure other readers would say the same thing about Monastic Chronicles, so I don't know how to defend that judgment exactly except to say that hagiography is especially drawn to idealization and typology. It's part of the underlying ideological workings of the genre that all saints grow to resemble each other. Individuality and specific detail tend to get erased in favor of categorical, exemplary traits and actions. Where you can get a lot of interesting detail is in posthumous miracle catalogs for a saint, 
Certainly, that's the case with William of Norwich and the miracles ascribed to Simon de Montfort as well. I have on our schedule a dive into the posthumous miracles attributed to King Henry VI, which are amazing little episodes full of local color, um, a lot like what we have with Thomas of Monmouth's narrative of the Norwich miracles. We're even going to see this in our text for today, which gets more detailed in its record of miracles than it does in describing Odoric's life. But the main biographical part of Miniavita is often weirdly perfunctory and generic. And that shouldn't be surprising when you also consider the function of remembering and celebrating saints in the medieval church. In a way, their life is just a job interview for their sainthood, which is what really matters. The saint as a spiritual entity is of more immediate interest as an intercessor or advocate to be appealed to as a channel for aid and healing than as a historical figure. If the posthumous miracle catalog comes to dominate over the actual narrative of the life, perhaps that can be ascribed to the attitude, sure, your life was great, but what have you done for me lately? Anyway, since we have a full-on self-contained Vita here, I thought I'd take the opportunity to drop in a bit of hagiographical narratology. Lots of people have dissected the components of the typical medieval saint's life. Uh, here I'll use a version delineated by Regis Boyer from a 1981 article entitled An Attempt to Define the Typology of Medieval Hagiography. Boyer breaks down the narrative scheme of the typical saint's life into nine steps. Step one, give the origins of the saint, their family and birthplace. Two, describe the birth, which might be accompanied by miracles or omens. Three, childhood, usually emphasizing precocious wisdom or remarkable piety. Or, in contrast, great wildness or wickedness, which is destined to be corrected in a singular epiphanic conversion moment. Four, describe the saint's education and spiritual teachers, if applicable. Five, give discourse on and examples of the saint's piety. Six, describe the saint's death, often with more detail than anything else so far will have received, especially in the case of a martyr. Seven, provide an inventio, or description of the discovery of the saint's body or relics, and the miracles that are invariably attached to them. Indeed, which kind of have to have been documented if the saint went through canonization by the regular process. Eight, the inventio is followed by a translatio, which is the translation of the relics into whatever place they presently reside and are venerated at. This often comes with an extended description of the beauty and features of the shrine itself that pilgrims might go and see. And finally, nine, that catalog of additional posthumous miracles testifying to the saint's continued sanctity and active presence. These also have often been formally collected by church authorities as part of a canonization process. Additionally, saints' lives are characterized by an indifference to details of time or place. Locations might be named, but there's often no specific local details or clear sense of spatial movement or progress. And timelines are treated the same way. Specific markers of time for individual events are usually lacking, uh, except for the date of death. Otherwise, you might get a vague reference to the saint being young or old during a particular episode, but seldom more than that. And chronology of events is usually disconnected. You're generally given very little idea of how much time passes between different events or any coherent sense of a plotline moving through the events of a life. 
Instead, you get something more like a collage of snapshots. And if time and space are a bit fuzzy, so is the individuality of the saints themselves, as I've already touched on. Now, as with all general formulae, each individual case is likely to deviate somewhat from the pattern. So as we listen to the life of Odoric, let's see how closely it follows along. But before we get into the reading, a couple of definitions for potentially unfamiliar words. The first is nacre. This is a type of kettle drum and sounds a bit like this. The name comes from Arabic, nakara, and entered into the vocabularies of a number of European languages, including English, after the Crusades. The other word is not as obscure, but worth defining just because having a clear image of it will make a particular detail in today's story all the more vivid. That word is fistula. Those of you with a touch of medical knowledge are probably already cringing. Like nacre, this word also has a musical connection. It's from the Latin fistula, which means a flute or pipe. From this sense, it was also used to refer to the metal pipe through which consecrated wine might be received during the Eucharist, um, using it like a straw, an object used in the early church, but which in later periods was only regularly used by the Pope, and sometimes for administering the sacrament to people unable to drink normally. Today, though, fistula is primarily encountered in its medical sense, in which it is a tube-like ulcer often bifurcating all the way through a layer of tissue, and that's what it means in our text. Um, and the medical sense also goes all the way back to antiquity. So you have that to look forward to as we move on into our reading. Um, I do just want to throw out an idea, though, which on cursory inspection, I haven't been able to find any evidence to confirm or deny, so maybe some of you out there can help me out. I hadn't heard about the Eucharistic fistula until looking into the etymology of the word. My thought was this. You find accounts in the hagiography of some saints, uh, Catherine of Siena springs to mind, who sucked on wounds and ulcers of the sick, drawing out and often consuming the blood and pus inside. Is there any possibility of this as a symbolic act being reinforced by the double meaning of fistula that would have existed in medieval Latin? To suck the sacred blood through a pipette and to suck on an ulcer are both to suck on a fistula. It seems like there might be something there providing a metaphorical rationale for such an outrageous action beyond just conventional ascetic self-abasement. Well, anyway, let's get on into it. This translation of the Latin text of the life of Odoric of Pordenone was made by A.C. Mool and published in the journal Tung Pao in 1921. For context, Odoric is believed to have been born around 1286 and died in 1331, so that's the time frame we're working with in this narrative.
Under the Minister General Gerard Odo, there flourished and died before the chapter at Perpignan the most perfect man, Brother Odoric of Friuli, who entered the Order of Minor Brothers when he was quite young, and from the time of his profession always wore haircloth or coat of mail next to his skin. He was never willing to be promoted to the official positions of the Order, but to be busy with humble ministries. He always fed sparingly, too, as far as possible on bread and water and the bread was commonly made of a red grain which is given to donkeys for oats. Also, before he went beyond the sea, he was alone in a certain wood with the leave of his minister, leading the solitary life of a hermit. Once also, while he was praying in church, he saw the devil trying to strangle a burger for three nights. A certain woman, the wife of a smith, who had a cancer on her jaw, was cured by the divine power alone through Brother Odoric at the prayer of her husband, after the sign of the cross had been impressed on her jaw with the greatest devotion. And with the sign of the cross, he healed a girl who had a disease of an incurable nature in the hand. He exacted from her, nevertheless, a faithful promise that she would never tell it as long as he lived. Moreover, when in his piety he had crossed the sea and passed through many lands towards the south and east, he saw many wonderful things which he committed to writing, and so made a book, which is called Concerning the Wonders of the World. In the sixteen years for which he was there, he baptized twenty thousand infidels and subdued them to the Catholic faith. Once he was there in a place where the order was that no one should receive any Christian under his roof under pain of death and confiscation of his goods. He, however, was so seriously ill that for a year he could not walk on his feet. He was nevertheless placed by a rustic under a tree, which is called fasciole, to lie there. And all through that year he ate nothing but the fruits of that tree, which continue all the year round, and drank nothing but the water which flowed from the foot of that tree. He said, too, that he had borne this patiently without anxiety. Moreover, once when, being very hungry, he had eaten a fruit which he had found in a stream, that fruit gave him so great strength that he traveled for nine days without needing or taking food or drink, and he believed that he would never have needed food or drink any more if he had not eaten other things to oblige some lady. Afterwards, when he was going to the house of an idolater to convert him, and was taking the man's son with him, when he got up after matins, the boy was so sleepy that he could not go on. So Brother Odoric put him up in a tree to sleep because of the wild beasts, and gave himself up, meanwhile, to prayer. And he saw a multitude of women, dressed in green, walking along the road in procession and singing melodiously. And after that he saw another, longer procession of women, dressed in red, who were followed by others dressed in white silk, and all had wonderful crowns. And at last he saw a lady of extreme beauty, dressed in garments of cloth of gold and supported by many knights. And then Brother Odoric was called by his own name by that lady so great, and he answered in amazement, Lady, who are you, and how do you know me? I, says she, am the mother of God, and go with all these to do honor to a woman who is soon to die, who has always served me in virginhood. The first procession indeed which you saw is of holy wives and widows, the second of martyrs, the third of those who have kept their virginity pure. And so, as they talked, Brother Odoric walked with her nearly half a league. At length, the Blessed Virgin told him to go back quickly to the boy whom he would find crying, and then to follow her at once, because the said woman could not die until he had ministered the Eucharist to her. 
As the vision vanished, therefore, Brother Odoric found the boy crying, and after that the sick woman, who, when he had communicated her, departed this life as the Virgin had said. He came also to a country which is called Maliscourt, where, as well as in Great Tartary, God has given such grace to the minor brothers that with a word alone they drive out devils from bodies possessed as quickly as they would chase a dog from the house. And for this reason, demoniacs are brought, bound to the brothers, from a distance of ten days' journey, and being set free and converted to the faith, are baptized by the brothers. And then the brothers put their idols, which are made of felt, in the fire. And if, as sometimes happens, they come out of the fire by the help of the devil, the brothers sprinkle the fire with holy water, and put the devil to flight, and the idols are burnt up at once. And the evil spirit cries out in the air, See how I am driven out of my house. And the idolaters hearing this are converted and baptized by the brothers. When he was going through a valley which is placed above a certain river of delight, he saw many corpses of dead men and heard such a sound of nakers and musical instruments that he was shaken by a great fear. Moreover, that valley is seven or eight miles long, and whoever enters it never comes out, as is known in that land, but dies without delay. Nevertheless, Brother Odoric, committing himself to God, went into it. So after, he had found innumerable corpses of the dead at the entrance, as he went on, he saw in the rock on one side a human face so terrible that he nearly died of fright. Commending himself, however, to God by saying continually, The Word was made flesh. He went up to within about seven paces of the face, but being afraid to go nearer, he passed on to the head of the valley. And going up a sand hill and looking about from thence, he saw nothing but a quantity of silver on top of the hill gathered together like fish's scales. And at first he put some of it into his bosom, but afterwards, having no use for it, he threw it away. He heard, moreover, all the time the sound of the said nakers, and by the protection of God came out unhurt. And when the Saracens saw him, they saluted him with the greatest astonishment, and said that he had so escaped because he was baptized and holy. They said also that the said dead men were evil spirits of hell. He came also to the wonderful palace of the most great emperor who is called the Great Khan, where the minor brothers always have a special place at table, and the emperor receives the blessing from them. When, however, he had stayed with him for two years, he came back of his own wish this side of the sea, that he might take brothers there to teach the people. While, therefore, he was returning for the said reason to his own land, the devil appeared to him on the road in the form of a woman pilgrim, and when she asked him, calling him by his own name, where he was going, Brother Odoric said to her, Who and whence art thou? She replied, I am the devil, come to hinder thee in thy business, lest thou drive us from our possessions. And know that never shalt thou return to these lands. And he, all disturbed, shouted in answer, Go, Satan and father of lies, for I believe thee not at all. 
Now his companion, who was behind him, wondered that he talked so loud with himself and thought that he had gone mad. And when he blamed him for talking so, he answered that he was not talking to the air, but to the devil, who, says he, said so-and-so to me. When, however, he wished to go to the Lord Pope for his blessing and to beseech him with regard to the troubles of the order, when he was at Pisa, he began constantly to be very ill. And when he was in great pain, the blessed Francis appeared to him in a cloud, which was bright inside and dark outside, and said, Brother Odoric, thou shalt not go to the court, for I am going and will set forward the business for which thou wishest to go. But rise and go back to thy nest, and there shalt thou die, for this city is not worthy to hold thee dead. And he had himself carried away at once to Udine, his own country, notwithstanding his very great bodily weakness and the distance of the place. And when he had been generally confessed and the confessor wished to absolve him, he said, Father, I am glad for thee to absolve me, although I have no need, because I have been absolved from all my sins by God. And afterwards, on Monday about terse, he departed this life. But when the brothers wished to bury him after the office at Vespers, the Gastald, or governor of the city, who was a great friend of Brother Odoric, comes and says, Brothers, it would not be a good thing that such a man should be buried thus. But wait till the morning, and I and the whole town will do him honor. And so it was done. And on the following Tuesday morning, while the brothers were saying the funeral service and women were coming up according to the custom to kiss his feet, a certain lady in the service of the sister of the Lord Patriarch of Aquileia, who had had her whole arm shrunken for several months so that she could do nothing for herself, confidently touched her own shrunken arm with the arm of Brother Odoric and instantly called out and showed that she was cured. Then everyone shouted aloud and said, He is holy and so must not be buried so quickly. And then many sick people came and all went away, cured by his merits. His face was more beautiful than when he was alive, and his limbs were as pliant as those of a living man. But when people had torn off his cassock up to his knees, a woman who tried to cut off one of his fingers with scissors was suddenly paralyzed, and on account of this, the brothers shut up his body in a coffin. And on Wednesday, the reader of the preachers preached about his life in the evening. And when they wanted to put him in another coffin with three locks and then to bury him in a new tomb, and devout people were coming in crowds to kiss his feet and hands, so sweet a smell came from the coffin that all wondered. And the custos of the Church of the Canons, a man of position, and some of the burghers, wanted to prove whether the brothers had put in scent to deceive the people. And one of them uncovered him, and by applying his nose even between his legs, found the same fragrance all over the body, and even swore that for more than a week he perceived that scent on his hands which had touched the sacred corpse. When he was buried and people were taking pieces of the first coffin for relics, one man, wanting to take a piece of the first shirt with a great sword, cut off the whole of his own finger. And after putting some of the said wood on the cut, he wrapped up his finger, hanging as it was by the skin, and so went to the doctor. And when the broken finger was unbound, it was found so healed that scarcely a trace of the cut could be seen. And the doctor was annoyed, thinking that he had been hoaxed, until the man, lost in astonishment, stoutly declared that the cut had really been made and that he had been healed by Brother Odoric. 
On the following Friday, the Lord Patriarch of Aquileia came from one of his castles to visit the sacred corpse. And when the doctors said that they doubted whether he had really been dead before he was buried, since his limbs were supple and his face fair and of good color and his body sweet, the Lord Patriarch caused him to be publicly taken from the grave so as to remove this mistake. And when the governor and the consuls and the warden, who for safer custody were keeping the three keys where the sacred corpse was, met, the coffin was unlocked and the sacred body taken from the coffin and reverently placed on an altar. And the Lord Patriarch, seeing his limbs still supple and pliant as those of a living man, and perceiving the greatest sweetness with his nose, could not refrain from tears. And putting a ring on his finger, he knelt down and worshipped him as a saint. And after him his whole retinue did the same. His face, moreover, was fair and fresh as if he were alive. And when the abbess of Aquileia, whose convent was at a distance of six leagues, came to the place, the governor, consuls, and warden aforesaid, who held the keys of the said coffin, came, and the sacred corpse was placed on an altar again with lighted candles at her request, because she was very noble. And while the sisters, two and two, were coming devoutly to kiss his feet, a stone from the building fell on Brother Odoric's leg, making a bruise and wound from which blood flowed. And the governor of the city wiped up the blood with his silk-lined hood and kept it as a relic. Brother Michael of Venice, who had fistulas of an incurable kind in his throat, and the throat itself pierced, for quite seven years, heard in the lands beyond the sea of the miracles of Brother Odoric, and devoted himself to the same holy man. And Brother James sent him a letter to this effect. Brother Odoric, most loved companion, for the mutual love, friendship, and fellowship which we had together amongst the unbelievers, and by the merit of thy holiness, I beg, pray, and beseech thee to heal our friend and faithful representative from every disease. When indeed the said Brother Michael came to his tomb on the vigil of Pentecost after Matins, and had read the aforesaid letter on his knees in the presence of two brothers, and had put a piece of the holy man's coat on the wound with faith, he found himself, after prayer, so perfectly healed that he preached to the people the same day and showed them the place of the wound and published the miracle. On the next day, a woman was brought from Padua in a carriage who had broken the spine of her back in hard labor and had become so doubled and bent towards the ground that she could not raise her head more than three palms, though, nevertheless, she was naturally tall and had walked with a stick doubled up like this for ten years. But when she stayed there by the tomb, on the third day she was restored to her former health, walking in the sight of all, perfectly upright, without a stick. With many other miracles did the Lord make his saint wonderful, to whom is honor and glory forever. So, there's the life of Odoric of Pordenone, or Odoricus of Friuli, or of Udine, depending on who you ask. As for the nine parts of a generic Vita, it does... okay. It's most divergent in its opening. We really don't have origins, birth, or childhood. As far as this Vita is concerned, Odoric's life begins when, in his youth, he enters the Franciscan Order. So the first three elements aren't really there. 
The next two, education and piety, are essentially rolled together in a mix of the account of asceticism and miracles of his early life and the events of his travels. So the comparison to the paradigm is pretty weak so far, which maybe reflects that Odoric's life is rather different from the most common patterns for saints. He most closely matches up with other early missionary saints who went on conversion missions to pagan lands, but he doesn't establish churches, he doesn't convert any kings, he doesn't meet with martyrdom. It isn't even at all clear that he went east with any particular sanction or official mission. Indeed, the impression is rather that he just went off on his own whim. Odoric himself, in the opening lines of his travels, states, quote, I, Friar Odoricus of Friuli, being desirous to travel unto the foreign and remote nations of infidels, saw and heard great and miraculous things which I am able truly to avouch. End quote. No mention of a papal commission or anything. So I suspect our hagiographer is struggling a little bit to fit Odoric into the pattern, and the Vita shifts into disconnected snapshot mode even faster than would normally be the case. Things do crystallize when we get to Odoric's death, which is item six in the pattern. And here we do get a proper, extended, sequential narrative as we witness the tussle over his remains and the attempts to stake out jurisdiction over the corpse. That also covers section seven, the inventio of the relics, which transitions right into the translatio, the settling of the relics into their final resting place or places. We don't get a shrine description, but there is a lot of attention paid to the features of the locked coffin that he's kept in. The ninth and final section, the posthumous miracle catalog, is relatively brief, but a lot of miracles had already been incorporated into the narrative of the burial that preceded it. And let's take a slightly closer look at those posthumous miracles. Our translator says that the woman in the final one broke her spine in hard labor. You might be picturing breaking rocks in a quarry with a pickaxe or something like that, but in hard labor is a translation of ob difficultatum partus. The partus there is the same Latin word that gives us postpartum, as in postpartum depression. It means childbirth. Hard labor is a difficult childbirth. It would be very unlikely for someone to actually break their spine in labor. However, various kinds of paralysis are not uncommon after childbirth. Pressure on nerves can lead to lingering neuropathic numbness or paralysis in one or both legs. And there have been cases of women developing Guillain-Barre syndrome shortly after giving birth, leading to much more severe paralysis that can take years to recover from, as we have in this story. And severe back pain can also come from a loss of bone density during pregnancy. And I can imagine in the absence of treatment that a woman could have pain strong and persistent enough that she couldn't bear to straighten up, maybe even for years afterwards. In our penultimate miracle, we also have a curious case of a living intercessor for a saintly miracle cure. Normally, saints are presented as intercessors between those who are suffering and God. You make your appeal to the saint, and the saint petitions God on your behalf for the miracle. At least, that's the orthodox position. In practice, it gets mixed up with folk magic. It's hard to envision how, for example, the petitioning process relates to being cured by touching a bit of a saint's garment, or drinking water that's been poured over the stone of a saint's tomb. That aside, 
Here we have a sufferer, Michael of Venice with the throat fistula, who petitions not Odoric, but the saint's surviving companion, Brother James. Then James writes essentially a letter of recommendation for Michael, who takes the letter to the shrine, reads it out loud, and then gets his cure. So James plays the normal role of intercessor, and the saint sort of slots into the god position. Of course, the orthodox theological response would be that no, Odoric is still functioning as an intercessor. You just have an intercessor for an intercessor, which seems peculiar, but is actually kind of unremarkable in the context of medieval power structures. It actually wouldn't be unusual to get a letter of recommendation to connect you with someone lower down in the court or the curia, who you would then lean on to advocate for you to someone further up in the hierarchy. I don't get a letter of recommendation from my uncle to give straight to the king. I get one addressing my uncle's friend, the chamberlain, and then the chamberlain goes on to put in a good word for me to the king. You're getting a recommendation to secure another recommendation. And really, that kind of thing isn't uncommon today. You have a friend who has a friend who works at a place where you want to get a job, so you get your friend to call their friend who talks to their boss, and so forth. I think in the present day, that kind of networking, while common, is somewhat looked askance at. It smacks of favoritism and unequal treatment of candidates. Favoritism is kind of the overt modus operandi for medieval power, um, and would have been taken as simply the natural order of things. Anyway, this little hint of putting the saint in the position of God resonates with some of the other details of this text in odd ways, some of which seem to border on the idolatrous. For example, you have Odoric explaining that he doesn't need absolution from his confessor because he's already received it directly from God, outside of the sacrament. You also have Odoric instructing a girl he's healed not to reveal the miracle, which certainly plays into a conventional trope of humility, but also runs counter to the virtue of publishing miracles. He's failing to display the revealed power of God. Um... Though at some point the word got out, or else this miracle wouldn't be recorded here, right? This anecdote aligns Odoric with St. Francis, who is described in his early vitae as trying to conceal his stigmata, and Francis is the first stigmatic in the hagiographic record. And Francis and the dawn of his order in the 13th century come with a lot of messianic overtones. Again, the orthodox explanation is that, of course it does, Francis is living imitatio Christi, in emulation of Christ. He's not a new Messiah. His life and body is meant to remind us of the true Messiah. But that said, having read the early Vitae of Francis, I'll just say I'm not surprised his order was viewed with deep suspicion by the church authorities, and not just because of its critique of wealth. Even without going so far as saying Francis is a new Christ— there is a sense in which he's perceived as a higher order of saint than others, that he is uniquely close to God. And this life of Odoric seems to me to brush up against some similar ideas. Like Francis, Odoric has visions and conversations with divine messengers. Uh, a different chronicle, the De Conformitate, written about 20 years after this one, names as Odoric's chief miracle the raising from the dead of another friar who had been in his tomb for six days a fairly grand miracle and an odd one to find omitted from this longer life. 
But more than imitating Christ, it might better be said that Odoric's life is being conceived as in imitatio Francisci. Of course, in the end, while we have this saint's life for Odoric, he was not canonized. He was beatified in 1755, making him the blessed Odoric of Pordenone, but not officially Saint Odoric. Not yet, anyway. Our mystery word today is raflare, R-A-F-L-A-R-E. Given our text for this episode, I thought I'd find a medieval Italian word. But I ran into a problem with that, which is that there isn't exactly such a thing as medieval Italian per se. You have Old English, Middle English, Modern English. You have Old French, Middle French, then somewhat confusingly Classical French of the Enlightenment era, and then Modern French. Low and High German are divided into similar historical categories, but Middle Italian is not a thing. I don't know much about Italian, so forgive the following rough generalizations, But basically, compared to other Romance languages, Italian hues closer to Latin for longer, and it's harder to draw distinct lines between a local Italian dialect and Latin. And local dialect is the other key word there, because the city-states of the Italian peninsula each evolved down their own paths away from classical Latin. So you don't have Middle Italian. You have Medieval Florentine Tuscan, which is a different beast from Medieval Venetian, etc., This actually still holds true today, with quite pronounced regional differences throughout Italy, and the standard Italian that you'd be taught in an Italian class today, and which is the language of official communication, is something of an artificial construction. I mean, you can say that about virtually all standardized language forms, even English, uh, but it seems especially pronounced in Italian. Indeed, according to Wikipedia, when Italy was unified in 1861, the number of people who could actually speak standardized Italian properly was less than 3% of the population. This all also reinforces the scholarly theory I mentioned in our Marco Polo episode, that Rusticiano took dictation from Polo in French, because despite both being Italian, French may have been a more intelligible common tongue for the two of them to converse in. Anyway, All that is just to say, I had trouble finding English dictionaries of distinctly medieval Italian words, so today's word, reflare, actually comes from a rather fun early modern dictionary made by Anglo-Italian courtier and translator John Florio, who was very possibly an acquaintance of Shakespeare's, and who may have helped the bard with his Italian and French references. I love the title of Florio's Dictionary of 1611. It's called... Queen Anna's New World of Words, or Dictionary of the Italian and English Tongues, Collected and Newly Augmented by John Florio, Reader of the Italian Unto the Sovereign Majesty of Anna, Crowned Queen of England, Scotland, France, and Ireland, etc., and one of the gentlemen of her royal privy chamber, whereunto are added certain necessary rules and short observations for the Italian tongue. Huh. Raflare does not occur in any modern Italian dictionaries I could find, so I'm hoping that it at least qualifies as an obsolete or archaic word. That said, a bit like our Welsh Pac-Man from a few episodes back, this is almost certainly a loanword into Italian from neighboring medieval languages. Florio defines raflare as to rifle for anything at dice. And that brings up the other reason I picked this word for our second Odoric episode— Previously, we talked about the etymology of sweepstakes, 
And here, we have the origins of a related concept, the raffle. Because ultimately, that's what rafflare is, though modern raffles have moved away from the dice and towards the lottery. In the 14th century, we see forms of raffle appearing in a number of languages, Middle English, Middle French, Middle High German, uh, all referring to a specific dice game, where you win the stakes by rolling three of a kind, or if not that, the highest pair. It appears in Chaucer's Parson's Tale, now comes hazardria with his appurtenances as tablas and raffles. The word's earlier origins are fuzzy, but it may derive from a Germanic root meaning comb or rake, and might relate to the same idea as the sweepstakes. The winner of the game rakes up all the money. The dice game since continues through the 17th century uh, around Europe, but in English specifically, at that same time, the sense we have today develops, of a raffle as the awarding of a prize by random drawing, uh, following a similar evolution as we saw with sweepstakes. Now, the verb rifle, which Florio uses in his definition, to rifle for anything at dice, is basically the same word, just with a vowel shift, and it even followed the same development in meaning, originally referring to playing a dice game and then coming to mean holding a raffle. The Oxford English Dictionary says rifle is still used in the latter sense as a U.S. regionalism, though I've never heard it, or at least never noticed it, and I can't determine what region this usage survives in. Alas, my efforts to Google rifle and raffle are overwhelmed by news stories about people raffling off rifles, which seems to have garnered a lot more attention online than a small matter of linguistic description. Well, that's going to do it for us today. We'll be back next time with a riddle. In the meantime, you can interact with us on Twitter at MDT Podcast, or send me email at patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com. Or if you just want to get more information, including bibliographic references for this and every episode, you can find all of that there at our website, medievaldeathtrip.com. And lastly, you can help and support the show by becoming a patron on Patreon. Find us there at patreon.com slash mdtpodcast or by searching for Medieval Death Trip on Patreon. I can't guarantee that will make you a patron saint of the podcast. Uh, That depends on the number of miracles you can reliably document. But your support is appreciated regardless of your spiritual status. Thanks to everyone who's become a patron so far, and thanks for listening.